we go to the next topic, which is IoT, AI, and interoperability. I always struggle to pronounce this last word, but it's all fine. It's all good. I think you understood me. Um, so it will be a one-hour panel that Nam will facilitate again. And we have three guests for this panel. So we have Dr. Fessal Arafsha, Dr. Fedwa Lamarty, and Geoff Parker. Uh, Dr. Arafsha is Senior Software Engineer at Brebonne Medical Corporation. Il est ingénieur en conception de systèmes informatiques et possède un mélange d'expertise en gestion et en solutions technologiques. Uh, several years of R&D experience in sensor network, uh, cyber physical systems, and system hardware integration. He is managing CreateBest, a $1.65 million biomedical engineering training program funded by the Government of Canada. Welcome, Dr. Fessal. Thank you. The next one is Lamarty. Dr. Fidoua Lamarty, uh, who is a professor, uh, a part-time professor at the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Ottawa and a researcher at the MCR lab. I think I pronounced that well. She's the first female engineer with a PhD in digital twins and is an upcoming woman leader in AI. Her thesis was nominated as best thesis and her research interest lies in AI, sports tech and interoperability <laughs> again <laughs> so we have all we all have we have stars only this morning so the less the next uh, speaker the last but not least geoff parker uh, geoff parker is a director of the technology des soins de santé chez macadamian his extensive work experience covers technical and business strategy software system architecture healthcare again interoperability HIPAA compliance, medical devices, mobile and cloud software development and product management. He's a sought out thought leader and speaker and enjoy contributing to, to community events. Welcome, Geoff Parker. Uh, now I will head into Namrata to facilitate the panel and enjoy. Thank you. Hello, welcome everyone. How are you Hi. today morning? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. Fed was always at the beach by herself. I was about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> she never invites us. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. Now I can see all of you, thank God. Otherwise, it's like three different screens, all of you. So, I want to first tell you guys a little story before I ask. I am here and I'm very grateful to Faisal. You know why? He was the guy who posted the Create Best event, which I Googled and I got it. And I went to the university and I got hired. So, so thank you, Faisal, for doing these kind of events. Um, and I'm very grateful. And so my first question to all of you is, please, can you introduce yourselves and give us your background? I'll go with Faisal first. Uh, thank you, Nam. Well, first, uh, I will comment on that uh, create best uh, coincidence thing. I I, will, I, uh, I always recall some points in my life in the past where it's, it's always a turning point, and I try to always remember that. And I, uh, the, especially for, for example, one of the things is is choosing to go into the field of uh, digital uh, technology. I was planning to go into mechanical engineering in the university, and, and I was on my way. At the university to go to that department to register for that uh, uh, for that field or for that uh, and so I met one of my friends and, and doing on the way in the hallway at the university going to that department and I met him and he tried he convinced me to go into technology and to go into field engineering back then like that was about 17 years ago 
And that's how, so this, uh, this, there are some points that you just remember and there, you, you realize that these are turning points. You don't realize them at the time, but then you remember them. Uh, enough about that. I'm just going to <laughs> introduce myself very quickly. So my name is Faisal Arasha. I have a PhD in electrical and computer engineering uh, from the University of Ottawa. Uh, I did uh, research on uh, wearables, uh, data acquisition, uh, cyber physical systems, which is basically a fancy word for saying software, hardware integration. My PhD thesis was focused on the sensors and sensory data acquisition, uh, wired and wireless communication, and real-time processing analysis and visualization. I, now I work at Braybon Medical Corporation as a senior software engineer. Uh, we design medical devices for patient monitoring, specializing in home sleep testing systems, therapeutic intraoral appliances, and software solutions for sleep uh, medicine. Uh, as you mentioned, I also manage a biomedical engineering training program called Create Best. I think everybody can see it at the bottom of the screen, <laughs> uh, which is a joint program between the University of Ottawa, Carleton, and McGill uh, that helps uh, graduate students uh, gain skills uh, necessary to become familiar with the biomedical engineering industry. And in my screen, the next is Jeff, so I'm just going to go what I see next is <laughs> Jeff. Sure, thanks, Dan. Um, hi everyone, it's great to be here today. So my, my background is uh, basically software development. So I've been in, uh, I guess, commercial software development for over 20 years, uh, working with a, a host of uh, different organizations and, and companies, starting with sort of enterprise integration um, and how do we just get enterprise systems to talk to each other um, and then eventually moving on towards um, healthcare uh, related systems and, and healthcare interoperability. So um, that's kind of gonna be my topic today. Um, over the time that I've worked, uh, sort of over the last 20 years, I've had the opportunity to work with um, lots and lots of different organizations and at very different scales. So from physician innovators who are sort of on the front line and they're seeing their environment and trying to improve things, um, right through to global corporations um, and sort of their next project or taking pieces that they've already built and then how do we connect them uh, into the rest of the ecosystem. Um, and then lastly, I, I've also worked with uh, some of the other um, health IT groups, uh, particularly around HIMSS uh, in operability, um, their HIE uh, panels. So that's the experience I'm bringing today. Looking forward to it. Yes, yeah, thank you, Nam, for hosting this event. It's great to be here with you all guys today, virtually with you. Uh, so, like um, Marie said, I do some research in the Multimedia Communications Research Laboratory at the University of Ottawa um, in the domain of digital twin and uh, uh, bridging the gap between artificial intelligence and health because it's right now used in many other domains but not in health yet. But there's many research that proves that it can be successfully used in the health domain as well. Um, I also teach part-time at the University of Ottawa and convey to our students there information concerning the use of AI uh, in many domains, including in health. So this is what I would like to be discussing with you guys today. Okay, thank you. Um, so my next question to you is, given that you guys have extensive backgrounds in technology, research, and also applying them, can you give us what have been your main takeaways, learnings, and how do you envision this connected health through health function? Yes. Yes. You want me to start? So, uh, 
uh, I learned something uh, very important during my academic years is that everybody is, is good at something, uh, regardless of you've spent some time on this earth, you have, have, you have some learnings, you've learned something, whether you're, whatever your background is. So I learned uh, to respect everyone. And just like uh, Vijay said in the, in the first panel, we assume a lot and we assume that everybody knows what we know. But after uh, getting into a lot of, uh, going into a lot of social events, I realized that every one of us has some knowledge that others don't know. And, I, and you, in the same way goes the other way around. So uh, I learned that you can learn from everybody around you. Everybody has uh, their own expertise. Um, that's on a different topic. I also, I want to comment on Dr. Shabnam's uh, uh, comment. Uh, he, she said that uh, she learned that monitoring uh, her, her blood sugar gave, uh, surprisingly uh, gave her uh, a way of, of uh, looking at the past uh, and, and learning based on collecting data. So this is also something I've learned in the past few years that you can keep track, you keep track of different data, different, uh, uh, any information that you can collect and it will come in handy one day. Thank you. Jeff? Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a great point, uh, Faisal, that, you know, we all have, uh, you know, our own niches of expertise. Um, and when it's, it's when we collaborate that we really get to see um, great outcomes uh, from things. Uh, and I think interoperability um, by its nature is connecting data from one system to another. And that, you know, is, is at a fundamental core of, of communication uh, and sharing information uh, and being able to collaborate on things. Um, but I guess when we start looking at data um, and the sharing of data, one of the important things to keep in mind is that a lot of data, when it gets created, isn't created with you in mind. Um, you know, a lot of the times when we take notes and we're writing things and, you know, imagine physicians in their office um, taking notes during a GP uh, consultation, the notes that they're writing um, are not intended for somebody else. They're mostly intended for themselves um, so that they re can record their thoughts and their ideas. Um, and when we start looking at things like interoperability and, and communication and sharing information, um, a lot of the data that's being created wasn't necessarily created with you in mind. And so it may have the wrong format. It may have the wrong content. Um, it may be too brief. It may be too verbose. Um, all of these things sort of come into play. Um, and so when we're looking at sort of data and, and data sharing, um, you know, I think that's one of the key elements to keep in mind. Edward. Yes. So I'd like to start by talking about the use of AI a little bit. So I'd like to say that AI is already in use by all of us every day in many domains. So like some of the ways that we use AI, like you probably don't even notice, but um, have you done some online shopping lately, for example, like on websites like Amazon? Then you have used AI because there were suggestions made to you about what to buy next. And this relies on algorithms of machine learning, et cetera. So have you, for example, um, unlocked your phone with face recognition? This is AI in action. Have you just unlocked your phone with a fingerprint, for example? This is also machine learning. Um, have you used, for example, just online search? If you use Google, then you've used AI as well. Um, when you use your email, uh, there is spam filtering. That's the use of AI. 
So this is to tell um, everybody that we are using AI already without even knowing, without even noticing it every day. So in the last 24 hours, we probably used it so many times. Some people also use assistants such as Alexa or Siri. You know, this is also use of AI. Um, so AI can also be helpful in healthcare. Um, so like we will speak about uh, in a little bit and probably Faisal will tackle this point from an Internet of Things point of view that there's so much data right now being collected and this data is very complex and um, uh, traditional algorithms just can't handle it. We need um, more advanced algorithms such as machine learning and deep learning in order to process this data and extract some useful information from it. And um, the reason why we need to do this is it has been, um, this point has been tackled really well by our speakers this morning about the challenges that we're facing in the traditional healthcare system that we have right now. Um, and also about the technology used in, in healthcare. So we've already been through this years ago when we were introducing the use of technology in health. So it's already there, like all the devices that are used by doctors and available in clinics and hospitals, like ECG devices and EEG devices, etc. So technology is already there. It's just um, right now about moving to the next stage of using technology we have. Yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you. Sure. And my next question to you, and this may be a little longer, so uh, to our uh, participants, uh, here is where I uh, unlock their expertise. So it's going to be like a monologue for maybe eight to 10 minutes from each of them. And my question is, uh, what have been the challenges and motivations in the fields that you come from uh, in adoption or in, in, in what you see as trends? So my first question is pointed to Faisal. What, do you are, what are the challenges or motivations from an IoT perspective? Yeah, so since like you said, this is going to take uh, what, eight to 10 minutes, I, I welcome any uh, interruptions and questions during yeah. this. So IoT is, is mainly, built on, uh, excuse me, it's mainly built on collecting data and using this data for, for something good. And uh, if we talk about medical uh, applications, then um, the main concern is always privacy. And uh, coming from, a, uh, from the industry and from uh, manufacturing devices, medical devices, there's also the regulatory aspect of things. So these are basically the most the main two challenges in, in this field is privacy and regulation. It's very understandable that people don't want to uh, have their information uh, public everywhere and uh, uh, they don't want to uh, all of a sudden see that the, their private information is shared. Even I sometimes I get annoyed by, by realizing that some company is sending me an advertisement email that I haven't ever heard about. So why, where did they get my email from? Even if it's just an email address. So what about uh, imagine if, if you if they have some uh, more personal information designing regulate designing medical devices there's also the challenge of, of uh, regulatory so they don't only uh, to follow to design a software that is involved with medical devices you have to follow certain standards you have to follow certain regulations and every region has its own regulations Europe has their regulation Australia has the regulations uh, the North America has their own regulation and there are differences in the regulations in, in the United States and, and Canada. Uh, they are mostly concerned about uh, the safety and the privacy of, of the patients. So not just the data information, even if you're redesigning a hardware, 
uh, if you have some sensors around this person, is it powered by uh, an external power or is it powered uh, by a battery, for example? Uh, how much uh, magnetic emission or electric emission is this device going to emit? To uh, is that going to be? What if someone has a heart problem and wearing a pacemaker and using your uh, Fitbit, for example? Is that going to affect it? So a lot of things that uh, challenge the design of medical devices. Uh, what motivates me most about uh, Internet of Things? Uh, I'll tell you a small, a very short story. So humans basically learn by observation. We observe the habits of, of different things. Uh, and that's how we learn about, the, about this thing, about whatever we're watching. So take astronomy, for example. The solar year is 365 days. And there are 354, 55 days in the lunar year. Uh, for the solar system, uh, that's the time that Earth rotates around the sun. But early people, early cultures did not know that we rotate the sun, we orbit the sun. Instead, they observed their crops and then they realized that there's a pattern to uh, when their crops grow uh, and can come up with, uh, and, and, that's, and that's how they realized that there's different, there are different seasons. There are four seasons basically and that they keep uh, rotating, they keep uh, going through a cycle. And then they were also watching the moon, so they realized that the moon goes to its full cycle in 29 to 30 days, and that's basically a month. So that's how they figured out that a year is basically 12 months. And then there's a story on how the uh, solar, uh, solar year evolved from the lunar year. So this, what I'm trying to say is that the, all of this information is, uh, came from people from by, by observing, they came to people by observing, and they were watching the moon, they were watching their crops, and then they learned that, okay, this is here, and so it came up with, so what I'm saying is, what if there wasn't, uh, there is some other information that they weren't watching that could have been useful? Let's take also uh, the current pandemic, for example, COVID-19. It's, it's uh, we are used to in the past, in, in our lives, that, uh, when there's a disease, there's usually some information that we follow, there's symptoms that we know, and then there's some medications that we can take. But for this, this is something new. So why is it taking so time? a lot of time? Because people are watching, they're observing what happens to people who get this disease. What are the symptoms that come? Because we don't know what the symptoms are yet. So the symptoms, and they're learning. And now it's becoming more obvious. Now we want to do more testing because we know what we're looking for. Because we've been observing in the past three months. So uh, the... Uh, the, the, the thing is, people also, so we observe and we learn from observing. We also forget, humans also forget things. So that's why in the beginning I, I was uh, saying that it's important for us to record whatever information that we can record. This is where the field of big data came from in the beginning. It's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not just soft data, it's not just software and data that, come, that are collected from social media and social networks. It's also physical data, for example, you need to collect temperatures just, just for the sake of collecting temperature. It, it proves to be useful in the future. People are monitoring stars, they're monitoring different things, and these things need to be recorded so it can probably, it, it, most probably it will be useful in the future. It, it's, uh, so relying mostly on observation and remembering stuff is not always uh, helpful. It has proven to be helpful in the past and that's how what we learn. And, and now we need to continue recording information. 
So the, in summary, is, uh, what I want to say is that we need to record as much information, analyze this information, and then we keep repeating the cycle. Record, analyze, and repeat. That's Thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Faisal. <laughs> Jeff? Hi, great. Um, so I guess some of the, the challenges uh, within sort of interoperability. Um, if, if we look at sort of data itself, um, connecting two pieces of information uh, or connecting two uh, systems together uh, and getting them to share information is generally not that difficult. Uh, there's a dialogue between the two people um, or systems or organizations and they can come to an agreement on what it means to, to share the information, um, what's the level of detail that's needed, um, and so on. But interoperability um, as a challenge comes from trying to share data um, with more than sort of that one system. It's how do we share it with tens of systems, thousands of systems, tens of thousands of systems, um, when we don't know what the other system is trying to do with it. What, what's their value? What's, what are they actually looking for in the data? And is the data that I've got actually useful to them? Um, and so interoperability as a challenge comes from its scale. Um, how do we get to a system where um, everybody can contribute their data in a common format um, and then everybody can consume it in a knowing way? Uh, and at the moment, um, you know, the industry has moved towards um, electronic records, uh, and I think Fedor sort of mentioned that as well. Like, we've gotten over that first hurdle of digitizing our information. It's now in a format that we can share more easily, more easily than a fax um, or a paper copy. Um, but going from there into now I want to be able to share it with really large audiences, uh, we get back to sort of questions around security and trust um, that Faisal just mentioned. Like, you know, we want to be able to ensure that our information is secure. Um, we want to know, you know, how are we trusting? Um, and that can be trust at the connection level. Um, and it can even be trusted sort of the application level. What are we looking at at this application to say, oh yeah, I want to trust this application with my data. I want to share some information with it. Um, and what, what's going to happen with that? Um, you know, we've got examples of uh, Cambridge Analytica uh, and Facebook and scraping of information there um, where, you know, lots of information gets, you know, carved off uh, and then goes into to different systems. And I think that's created a, a degree of uh, mistrust uh, within a lot of people in the community around different types of applications. So I think we need to rebuild some of that trust um, and get environments and marketplaces where people can trust these kinds of pieces. Um, and I, I guess as we start looking at really large-scale systems, um, what we sort of found when I was looking at um, health uh, HIEs, which is sort of networks uh, of groups which all sort of communicate information together, um, they're kind of sparse maps. So if I um, go to my local GP, for example, um, and I, you know, uh, I need to get a blood test uh, or something like that, then I'll go to a lab that's down the street that's convenient to me uh, to go and get my lab test done. But my GP, you know, serves hundreds of other people, uh, potentially even in the same day or same week. Um, and those people, you know, all of those who need blood tests may go to different places. Uh, and so it's not just that sort of one-to-one -one clinic matching that we've got. We've got this 
larger network where it might be dozens of different places where people are going to get their blood tests done and where we need to get, gather those results from. Uh, so from an interoperability standpoint, this creates that challenge of, you know, we can connect with lots of different systems, but the more that we connect with, the higher our overhead over time. Um, and we get into this sort of cost dynamic where we get to a point where there's no longer the benefit um, from a cost standpoint to continuing to integrate with lots of different places. Uh, and so fundamentally, there needs to be a, a shift in the way that people integrate and communicate. Um, and I guess, you know, there's where we can kind of see some good news on the horizon. Um, in, in the U.S., uh, recently they um, promoted the 21st Century Cures Act um, and uh, put forward the regulation for that, which is promoting um, fire uh, as an interoperability resource uh, and as a mechanism, and it's moving away from uh, some of the older uh, systems of, of sharing information. Uh, and I think the other important thing with the, the 24th century cures is they're also uh, putting forward provisions to stop people from blocking information. So no longer will organizations be able to say, nope, we won't give you access uh, to information that's yours. Um, you need to be able to provide it in a standard uh, API and format that people can get to. Um, so I think this is uh, one piece, uh, and you know, regulatory can be a, a double-edged sword, um, but it's something that's going to encourage people to, to create the interfaces um, and foundations for people to be able to share uh, without necessarily knowing what uh, comes with that. Um, but then I guess uh, on the, the flip side of that, there's a, a digital or a health literacy uh, component that needs to come from uh, consumers within the marketplace. Um, we need to become more active participants in our own healthcare uh, to take advantage of this. Otherwise, we're, we're going to go back to the same model of, well, I want these other systems to communicate for me, um, and I don't know anything about what's going on. So I think that's one of the things that's sort of coming up. Um, but then I think, you know, long term, the benefits for um, sharing information uh, are well sort of established. There's a lot. Uh, more complete picture uh, of patient care uh, when clinicians are evaluating us. Um, you know, we can lower the cost by not having to duplicate tests, uh, things like that that are happening. Um, you know, more efficiency in the services by not running tests that you know have been done sometimes literally hours uh, or days ago uh, for the same test. Uh, and I think there's another benefit which comes from sort of the regionalization um, of some of these supports when we start looking at tools uh, and devices that can measure uh, and AI that can diagnose um, will get to systems which are more easily deployed in remote environments, um, so regional areas and things like that. Thank you. Um, Fedwa? Yes. Um, so as had been said by our speakers, so if we take all of this data that has been gathered by the devices, the Internet of Things devices, and that we do it in a way that we ensure interoperability so that the doctors and caregivers are able to benefit from, from this data and to, to, to get this data, to read this data, then now AI can come to help benefit, make sense of this data. Right? So, so it can help both quantitatively and qualitatively. And I'm talking about AI here as a tool that assists doctors uh, serve their patients better. So in terms of quantitative, uh, assistance. There's, as we said, so much data involved, and the doctors just can't hold all of this data in mind at the same time, like computers can do. So, how many parameters are involved in a person's health? And we're talking just about one person. So, we have medical doctors here at the center. 
I'm, I'm going to name a few of them, but there is no probably hundreds of them. So there's a lifestyle, right? The exercise, the eating habits, the water intake, the, the job type, the stress level, right? The environment, sleep quality, etc. And the list goes on. So, and all of these parameters play a role in health. So these elements can help both in the diagnosis, uh, depending on the lifestyle of a person. Uh, it could be this illness or, or the other, and the doctors need all of these elements to help. So that so when we use AI algorithms, more specifically machine learning or deep learning algorithms, uh, suggestions can be provided to doctors by computers to, uh, to to help them come up with the with the right diagnosis. And it's also the doctor that's going to at the end. Um, make the, the final decision, but getting the assistance from the computers can help a lot. So if we take the example of blood tests, um, so the, the, the blood tests can provide the doctor with a lot of numbers, right? And the computer programs can also provide visuals, better visuals of these numbers, and it can provide visuals that can span many years of the patient's life, rather than just the latest year or two. Uh, it can also show the doctor how the person is progressing in terms of their health. Um, and because the, the, the computers can hold much bigger volume of numbers, okay, and because they are good at detecting patterns, then the suggestions can be made to the doctors um, in order to lighten their workload so they can serve the patients better so that their time can be used um, um, in a better way. And in terms of qualitative, uh, assistance, um, AI can help provide personalized healthcare, right? So, uh, uh, like we all know, a one solution fits all just doesn't work. You cannot provide the same treatment just because we have same symptoms in one area or in effects in other areas. For example, uh, if you take a person, Bob, for example, who goes to a doctor with a specific illness, the doctor could look at their personal history, the specific situation, specific lifestyle, right? But how much time that the doctor have. So if a computer program that can run uh, numbers, uh, algorithms on, on numbers very fast in the background, provides a doctor with relevant information, then the doctor would have more time for every patient because now they have a tool that assists them rather than relying on just looking at the screen on all of the numbers and trying to get the most out of them with the limited time that they have. Um, and also, and very importantly, instead of waiting for a disease to happen, okay, in order to take action, what if some other numbers in the blood tests uh, are getting, for example, higher than they should, uh, higher than the last year or two years? But the doctors are busy looking at the problem at hand. So a computer program can raise a warning and draw the doctor's attention uh, to those numbers as well, instead of waiting until they get too high and now we are facing an illness, right? that could have been prevented if we used uh, inputs from computers. But again, it's because there are just too many parameters in today's lifestyle, and the doctor can benefit from help that the AI and technology in general can provide. Uh, are there any questions so far? There will be tons of them, I'm sure. Okay, sounds good. Yes, ma'am? Sorry? We're going to let the questions happen now. Yeah, at the end, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so I'm gonna, yeah, I'd like to talk about AI just very briefly. 
So we use the term AI very broadly and we use it quite a bit in, uh, lately in, in these days. So it's, it's, the AI is a study uh, of computer, uh, computer devices that can perform tasks because that usually require human intelligence. So it's basically uh, making the computer smart. But the fact is that we're not there yet. We don't have computers that are smart that can think for themselves, but we do have machine learning algorithms or deep learning algorithms, right? These are algorithms that differ from the traditional algorithms in that they can learn from the data directly without being explicitly programmed. So instead of telling, for example, a machine uh, what a specific uh, uh, image that shows a disease should look like, what we do is that we provide the machine with many, many, many examples of what an, a certain uh, image that shows an image looks like. And this is the, like this labeling of those images as uh, um, showing a disease or the other, uh, this knowledge comes from the doctor. So this is doctor's expertise in action. Um, and so uh, the doctor have labeled these uh, specific data images or numbers or any as uh, either normal or abnormal. So what we do is that we show the computer so many examples of these, thousands and thousands, so well that the machine, when it sees a new example, it can categorize it as normal or abnormal. And in the abnormal category, it can also categorize it to a specific disease or illness, right? And so it can raise warnings. And again, it comes again to the doctor once, once its uh, attention is drawn to a specific uh, outcome of tests or imaging. Uh, and it's up to the doctor to decide whether the machine has made the right uh, diagnosis or not. So artificial intelligence, um, like I'm gonna call it like that, but it's really just machine learning and different algorithms, but let's call it AI in general. So uh, it can perform better than humans in, for example, image processing. So it doesn't perform better than humans or anywhere near humans in diagnosing a specific illness, but it can perform really well in getting the doctor's attention to specific, um, um, specific, for example, uh, if we take the example of radiology images. So there is a lot of advances that have been made by researchers there uh, in, in uh, getting AI algorithms that can spot malignant tumors, for example. Some research also suggests that uh, some image data that is not perceived by humans, okay, but that can be clinically relevant exists. And so if we talk about computer-assisted diagnosis, for example, as like red circle or heat mass maybe can be drawn around the area, the region of interest, and presented to caregivers to take a look at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of advances also have been made in terms of treatment recommendations. So like we said, there's so many parameters and um, uh, algorithms can take a lot of them into account at the same time and can take a lot of patient, specific patient attributes into account and make specific recommendations uh, that the doctor then can take into consideration as well. Um, so also um, other areas where AI can help is in terms of, for example, uh, chatbots. So these are available 24-7, okay, and they can answer patients, many, many patients' questions at the same time, much faster. They can avoid unnecessary visits to the hospital, for example, if it's clear from the person's uh, symptoms that it's, it's 
that, that we can, for example, um, let's, um, if we take the example of uh, right now, patients scarring clinics and being on waiting lists because the nurses are too busy. If we have chatbots that have been trained, okay, and we have a conversational AI that we can put into use, then this will um, lighten the job of nurses a lot. Uh, other advances have been made, I'm giving you a few examples here, okay? other advances have been made in terms of surgical robots, for example. They can provide surgeons with a lot of precision, also with minimal invasion to the patients, so the cuts are much smaller than they would have been otherwise. And of course, important decisions are still made by surgeons, but they are assisted by a powerful robot that can help. Um, so if, if we take a, a look at um, the health program um, as defined by WHO, um, it's, um, it defines it as a state of physical, social, and mental well-being. So in terms of, um, of physical health, um, we can take a look, for example, at the sedentary lifestyle. For many patients, when they go to the doctor and it asks, but the doctor in a lot of cases will ask about the physical activity. But the, what we report to doctors is not very accurate. We tend to underestimate how much time we spend sitting in front of a TV or computer or smartphone, some kind of electronic journey. But we have algorithms, AI algorithms, that are uh, implemented in trackers, for example, and they are very, very good at keeping track of, um, uh, of step count, uh, moderate activity, heart rate, etc. So when we employ the interoperability like um, uh, specified by Jeffrey, then the caregivers will be able to read that data from all of those trackers. And uh, recommendations can be provided based on the person's real number of step counts, the real number of model activity minutes, rather than just the guess of the patients. In terms of mental well-being as well, so um, doctors now emphasize how much stress is behind many known illnesses, and um, uh, research can right now detect serious stress level from some signals uh, captured by wearables. So we can put those wearables into reviews, and a machine learning algorithms can help predict um, the stress level of the person. So some research use, uh, uses devices like. ECG uh, and those are wearable devices. You don't have to be at the hospital for that. Uh, body temperature sensors, uh, for example, pulse wave sensor coming just from the smartphone. Um, and some of the systems are validated by human experts. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and some other applications of AI include emotion detection. So at the MCR lab, some of my colleagues are working, for example, on detecting emotions uh, from uh, signals of the body, so whether the person is happy, sad, angry, mad, and this all involves wearables without going to the hospital. And then the caregivers can be presented with this information to see if the person spent most of their time, for example, stressed or angry, etc. Um, AI can also provide recommendations uh, to the person, like if the stress is getting, level is getting higher, uh, to advise them to take take some guided breathing, etc., to lower the stress level. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so Faisal, you've been you've been uh, you've been in the lab and Fedwa hello, can you guys hear me? Yes. 
Okay, awesome. I think there's some internet variation that's happening. So things freeze for a second and they go and I don't know why, but yeah. it's in both the, it's in both my phone and this anyways. Um, so what do you think based on all these amazing applications based on the connections, how do you think we should go ahead with building a community of practice? Because frankly, there's so much out there and there's so much to do. What do you think would be good tips? Because you've been a lot in the social tech system in Ottawa. So what are your suggestions to us? I, uh, I believe that these social events uh, work. They uh, help build uh, a knowledge base. They help build uh, communities and they help uh, people uh, recognize who else is in the field, who else uh, shares the same interests. Um, so I would say we need to listen to others who everybody, like I said in the beginning, everybody has their own uh, path full of learning experiences. And then also one important thing is sharing knowledge. So when you go to these events, you have to talk also, to uh, uh, join new teams, uh, look at the meetups. Um, what I've, uh, one thing that I've, uh, I've learned during my PhD is, is a lot of people who go through PhD, usually around the second year, they go through what we call the, uh, what is called in the social sciences as the imposter syndrome. So you, uh, you feel that, okay, I, I've, I'm in my second year of my PhD and I have no idea what I'm doing. Am I in the right spot? Am I as, as, as qualified as these people that I see? And then that's how you realize that everybody is an expert, including yourself. You are an expert in something. You know something. That's why you're at, at this stage. And this is what <laughs> imposter syndrome is. Uh, I have a friend uh, who... Uh, who taught me a very important lesson. Uh, he, he wasn't very good in, in his academic life, but he used to go to every social event that he could find. He would go look at posters at the university and he would just spend like 15, 20 minutes, even sometimes an hour looking at all the posters around the building, trying to find this new event that he will go to tonight, tomorrow. He wants to fill up his whole week with events. And I asked him, don't you think this is a waste of time? You spend every day, but shouldn't you waste your, you spend your time with something more useful? And he he replied with this uh, this sentence. He told me, if I get out of this one hour session or two hour session with one minute worth of information, you know something new, then this is a success. I I I added to my knowledge today. And uh, yeah, so this is this is what I think. Uh, um, what this is what helps building communities. This is what helps. In, in uh, spread the knowledge. Yeah, thank you. Now. Thank you. Sorry, I was having internet issues, so I was doing some some back end job, tech support. Nam, <laughs> also today. And what do you think about this, Jeff? What is your follow up to what Fessel said? Um, yeah, I. I completely agree. I think the, the opportunity to go out and, and talk to different people, um, different uh, perspectives, uh, even on the same topic, uh, is a wonderful experience. I, I'm a big fan of Hacking Health, uh, as an example. Um, you know, it's a great event and community that gets around um, just, just try and change the way that healthcare is, is going at the moment. And so we end up with a really good mix of people from um, technology, from design, from um, the healthcare system itself, 
um, who can kind of come together and, and share that knowledge of, you know, here are the problems that I'm experiencing and um, get back ideas about, oh, well, what about this and, and different approaches that can sort of come. Um, so I think, you know, leveraging what events like that can provide um, is a good starting point for um, any kind of community of practice. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's a community building activity uh, that requires, you know, lots of people to come there. Um, and as long as, you know, everybody that can go to, to these events is, is finding that value, I guess, you know, finding that one minute uh, that Bible's friend uh, would get out of a meeting, um, then, you know, that's value. Uh, and people can build on that value to, to solve things in, in new ways. Um, Thank you for sharing and really happy to know that Hacking Health is one of our community partners. So it's good. <laughs> they got a shout out. Um, uh, who else? Fedwa, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's what, uh, what can be done is, like I, I joined the, the opinion of bringing the experts together for the discussion. So the summit uh, is serving to uncover right, the potential of technology in health, the challenges faced and the vision. And maybe next step would be, for example, to listen to maybe concerns of doctors and medical families about the use of technology. Like what are the challenges that they are facing from their point of view? Uh, I think that's um, opening the discussion is uh, the main point right now to go with. I think for me, one of the communities of practice also is when the MCR lab, when we do on a Thursday, when we're learning from each other's presentations, though most of the times I don't understand because I'm not from an engineering, I'm yawning or ignoring or trying to distract myself, but I do learn like something does spill over. So uh, yes, it's awesome to go and talk. Uh, so I've seen two trends, like when you talk about communities of practice, okay? When you have people who are medically trained or healthcare or doctors, whatever, or business people, they talk a lot. And then you have engineers who don't talk so much. And then you have to give them the opportunities to talk. Uh, and it's not that they're going to talk in the first time, you know, you have to not give up and continue smothering them with your friendship. Like most of you have been with mine. And you are good at that. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's the cultural difference that comes in also, which is important to understand when you're building an interdisciplinary practice, that some people will take time uh, to warm up and open up. And it's not that because they don't want to. I can tell you from my two years of experience in working in engineering lab, it's very different. They are, they have so much to share. It's just that you have to have different avenues. So uh, for example, you have like, even just with this summit, Every speaker has sent me a file in a different format on a different, uh, in a different, uh, firstly, they made it in a different uh, software and then they shared it in a different. So interoperability without it, I would be like totally dead right now. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is automated reminders to everybody. I did do that, but there was human intervention too. But what I'm trying to say is doing a simple, simple things like even our summit or, or practices, the what I like to take away for me from what Fedwa said was AI can draw your attention. It draws attention and that is important because that's the main thing which doctors or forget doctors, even people, general people, we don't pay attention. We are so oblivious to what's important for us. And what COVID did was bring things to attention to the point that you cannot ignore it. No? So I don't think we need to wait for another pandemic to happen. 
And from my side, I think I want to leave the floor open for questions because we've kind of, this topic was not super high tech, though these guys are gurus of tech because this is an interdisciplinary summit. So I'm actually quite surprised that it was, this was not even like 1% of tech what I hear in the lab. But uh, please ask away questions. I'm going to leave the floor open. We have 10 minutes and then we give you the break room and uh, leave the questions for you guys. And you can be as technical or non-technical with them because they they are the techies. Technical is more welcome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know in the audience how many techies. There are a few of them, but yeah. Go ahead, please. Chabnam, please. I can only see you, so I'm going to look at you and say, go, please. <laughs> so my question, Fedwa, you talked about uh, AI being a you know, decision-making tool for doctors. Now, what I, my li very limited understanding of AI is you need a huge amount of data points, right? So let us say uh, I have a small practice and I'm not a physician here. So I have a small practice. How would someone like me have access to some, you know, something that uses a lot of data points? Because I, what I understand is a lot of it is not available you know, in, in the open source. Yeah. Yeah, and this is one of the challenges that also researchers face, not only doctors, is that uh, there is a concern of privacy, right, um, versus the need for data. So we do need to access data, and in order to respect the privacy of patients, like we are patients too, right, and we want our privacy also taken into account. So we want this data to be anonymous. And the issue with that is that when you want to make data anonymous, it's not enough to just replace the name, for example, by a user ID. Because you can, AI is very good at detecting who the person is. And it's a kind of a dilemma. And um, so I think that the way to get more data is to, again, bring experts together to decide like, how much data is enough for the research and, like you say, for your practice to benefit from it without invading the patient's privacy decision. And once we, once we reach that, like how much data do I need and how much data do you need? And is this data going to uncover the uh, identity of the patient? And if not, then we should be available then, right? Uh, there is a lot of ethical discussions that need to happen for us to be able to access the data. And like you said, AI needs a lot of data to learn. A little bit of data is not going to be enough. So yes, like you brought a really good uh, subject. Yeah, and that's something I think I can tell you. These guys are ready to do the AI. <laughs> Just whoever is in policy in this, get the things rolling. They're hungry. They have it forever. So this is one of the reasons to get this summit together is also foster policy, regulation, innovation, because we cannot have those things working so slow uh, or so old that we are not able to do anything with them. You know? It's also like you said, Toshaba, is um, when we, for example, in a research lab want to collect data, and we can collect data, we have the wearables, we have the devices, but it's not like real data, right, that hospitals have. Uh, it's not like real data collected by people that just go about their day and maybe get a specific, um, maybe a, a Treatment from the doctor, so this we want to know about what kind of treatment, in which condition. This is all data that we can see the machines. If we have an illness and we have information about their lifestyle, then we can map these two together. So real data is very important, right? So if, even if we can generate our own data by asking participants to participate in our experiment, it's never going to be like the, the data from a real environment of everyday life. 
Thank you, Fedwa. So whatever you're talking about trends and things like that, right now we're doing a lot of it manually. <laughs> so it's like one-on-one -on -one conversation. So I'm definitely waiting for your tool to come up. <laughs> okay, that's good. So we have early onboarders. That's awesome. Yeah. Actually, I might just add a little bit to, to what you were saying there. One of the things that we've seen uh, from, from people, and it kind of comes, I guess, uh, from an information sharing standpoint is, you know, having APIs um, to share information is great, but unless there's a user interface or something built into the workflow of a user to integrate into the system flows and everything else that goes on, um, all the APIs in the world really don't help. Uh, and so by just thinking about an example that we've worked on with uh, Ottawa Hospital, um, was around muscular dystrophy um, and the research teams there were talking about, you know, really rare diseases, like rare cases of, of the disease where there might be only one or two uh, examples of this in the whole of Canada. Um, so collaborating and gathering sort of that body of data um, doesn't sort of work in that environment. Uh, and so finding ways to accelerate it and make that more useful um, sometimes isn't about the APIs themselves, um, it's about creating the interface uh, and a platform that allows people to go and share that information. And so uh, as, as an example of that, we created just a, basically a, a file sharing mechanism uh, that included some de-identification components to it so that people could upload studies uh, into this platform and we could start collating larger data sets um, that different researchers all around the world could then access and share. Um, and I guess, again, there, so de-identification becomes a key component of that too. Awesome. Yeah. Go ahead, Bob. Thank you. I, I wasn't sure how to <laughs> process it. It, it. Part of what got me thinking was there is a national data platform um, uh, that has been funded by CIHR, uh, led by UBC, uh, name isn't coming to me, to gather lots of different types of uh, clinical data, but also patient-generated data. Um, uh, more from a research perspective, and so it's connecting with groups like SIPSIN, um, uh, kind of a, a health collaborative that also gathers information. But the, I guess for me, and I'm thinking the, the opportunity that I keep hearing is centered around silos, um, whether we're talking from a uh, acute care uh, perspective with hospital or primary care, uh, which in Ontario at least is so uh, heterogeneous to be uh, <laughs> chaotic. You can hear his podcast. He went on forty one hour about it, and shot yeah, not exactly. to place twice that day. All over the place. <laughs> All over the place. But there's there's a part for me around tying the individual experience to the collective that for me, I think the AR and part of the opportunity is, and, and Nam, you mentioned it in health policy. So that idea to be thinking, okay, so that if we know that um, uh, diabetes uh, uh, correlate with uh, uh, cardiac or, or heart health, uh, correlate with activity, with these types of ideas, is there a way then to be looking at 
the, uh, the policy and not just health policy, but built environment policy. So what are, you know, one of the things that COVID is doing is showing that we need more active transportation. We need more ways of making civi uh, cities local. So are there ways of, of tying these pieces to actual health outcomes so that the individual aggregates in a way that informs structural policy? and not just individual care, which is great. Those, those ideas of it pointing out that, you know, this person, this combination of risk factors really does uh, pinpoint into this person. And then we even have, you know, individualized medicine happening and coming up as well. But for me, I'm interested more than in those parts where we look at population health, not just this area that I think I was hearing where you're taking clinical intervention and making it have a population health effect, but where do you take clinical experience and how can these technologies be taking clinical experience to actually look at then the unit of analysis being the community, not, the, not, not down to the level of the individual, but how do we then make these healthier communities so that we're not again relying on a total clinical experience the example I had given them was smoking. Even at 20% of the population smoking, we couldn't do individual interventions. You would have too much resources. You had to look structurally at how you actually help people um, to, to be healthier. So not sure there's a question in there, but it's something along that idea of how do we bring this more to a population health level? I, I think from a Again, from an inoperability perspective, uh, one of the, the things with the, the 21st Century Cures program um, is that there's a population health component to it. Um, so it's not just being able to uh, share and, and access data on an individual basis um, for, for clinical purposes, uh, but there's also a, an element of aggregation and de-identification that goes with it so that um, population health or communities uh, can gather data uh, on, you know, their population as a whole uh, and use that to better inform decisions. Um, so I think that's one good thing that, that we can see out of that. Um, and then, you know, up until sort of this, and this is still sort of evolving, um, but, you know, up until now, the only way I've really seen this happen on, on large scales is when um, large corporate entities can sort of spend the money to invest into um, identifying uh, and showing the value of, of different pieces. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's usually tied to some kind of corporate outcome, um, more so than public health. Great question. And, and, and um, I think I'm going to activate, are, are the Zoom rooms activated or not? The break rooms? I think they're not. They are activated. Yeah, they are. Awesome. Yeah, no, because my internet is jumping around, so I'm not okay. sure. But you know what, Bob, to make you happy, because you know, I love you so much as a good friend. <laughs> Our next speakers are actually amazing, amazing, amazing politicians from city of Côte St. Luke. And um, they're going to talk about how they did actually this at their city level. And it's actually public health population level. AI, IoT, everything combined in a pilot study. So, Marie, over to you. And I want to thank you. I thank you all the panelists. Thank you so much. Thank you, participants. And you can access the break rooms for further discussion. Thank you, Nam.
Thank you, Nam. And you can clap here, but I can like clap from here. And uh, <laughs> oh, we have the reactions below, right? There's some option called reactions. You can react and clap. There are like you can give a thumbs up. Make noise. Clap. 